Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Carter. Our desire is to help you wrestle with and reflect on the big questions in life. Like, why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? We lean on the best of the Christian intellectual tradition and elevate the thought leaders, both ancient and modern, who best grapple with these questions and direct our hearts towards the author of the answers. In this, our second podcast season, we'll be releasing groups of episodes thematically to allow for a deeper exploration of topics that we believe are both timely and timeless. Our first series of conversations will consider life after a global pandemic. With so many people across the world having experienced real loss, heartache, and isolation, how can we begin to take steps forward as a people called to hope, joy, and love? These are the kinds of questions we'll grapple with together, and we're so thankful that you're here. All of our episodes have been previously recorded and edited for length and clarity, but to listen to any of our conversations in full, just visit our website at ttf.org. Now, whether you're pouring yourself a cup of coffee and settling into a comfortable nook, hopping on the treadmill, or just starting your commute, we invite you to join us in one of the great joys of life, a conversation among friends on the things that matter most. With that, here's today's conversation. Several hundred years ago, the philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal attributed all the unhappiness of man as arising from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own room. John Milton, the great author, portrayed hell itself as pandemonium, and C.S. Lewis described screw tapes, or rather C.S. Lewis's screw tape described hell as the kingdom of noise, noise which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples, and impossible desires. And he cast an infernal vision of making the whole universe a noise in the end. Well, if Screwtape bears any resemblance to his prototype, one must give the devil his due. The massive expansion of our distractions, pings, mental clutter, competing responsibilities, and the growing din of the clashing claims of attention on our time and presence has made our private universes ever more chaotic and noisy. Shelter from the forces that lure and assault our attention, our guest today has argued, is found not in a new technique, but in the ancient practice and spiritual discipline of solitude and silence. In short, to be still and know that I am God. It's a practice both simple and difficult, modest and powerful, one that beckons the lonely to communion, the anxious to rest, the unsettled to peace, and the distracted to wisdom. And so it seemed a particularly apt time to ponder the invitation offered by the spiritual practice of solitude and silence. And I'm delighted to introduce our guest today who has literally written the book on exactly that subject. Ruth Haley Barton is the president and the CEO of the Transforming Center, a ministry dedicated to strengthening the souls of Christian leaders in the organizations that they serve. She's a trained spiritual director and retreat leader and the author of numerous books and resources on spirituality, including Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, where she also has a podcast by that name, Sacred Rhythms, and the work we've invited her to discuss today, 
Invitation to Solitude and Silence. Ruth, welcome. Oh, it's so good to be with you, Cherie. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. It is great to have you here. So we will just dive right in. And I have to ask you, at the very beginning of your book, you wrote that you chose to write about this subject because in your words, solitude and silence was both the most needed and least experienced spiritual discipline among Christians today. And you know, as one surveys the landscape of Christendom in America, there's probably many different disciplines one could say could be helpful or needed. Why do you believe silence and solitude is the most needed if least experienced? Oh, well, that's a beautiful question. I think there are some cultural things we could say, but solitude and silence in particular is where we encounter God, but it is also the place that's most challenging for us on so many different levels. Solitude just challenges us uh, psychologically, spiritually, culturally, relationally. It challenges us on every single level. And yet the scriptures are very clear, including the verse that you referenced, that there's a way of knowing God in the stillness that is different than how we know God in the busyness of our lives and in the noise and in the words and the activity of our lives. It's just so clear, you know, be still and know that I am God, be still and know something in a deep experiential way. And I believe that one of the reasons that solitude and silence is so challenging is because it's challenging spiritually, that the evil one, I believe, comes against all of our attempts to know God in that way. Because the evil one knows that if we do know God deeply and experientially in the center of our being, that the evil one's power over us would be unseated, you know? And so there's just a way of knowing God that is, is very different. And I also believe that the guidance that we need in, in moments, and of course, we're in a very difficult moment now in our culture, that there's a kind of guidance that comes to us as we listen to the spirit of God in the depths of our beings that's different than what we think our way into intellectually. And so even now, I think there's a tremendous need to go deep and to go down into the souls of our beings to hear the wisdom that we need as we are still in the pandemic and as we emerge from this crazy time that we've all been in. You know, We're not gonna think our way into the answers and solutions, I don't believe. We're gonna discern our way in and that's gonna come through listening to God in, in the depths of our being through solitude and silence. Yes. So you, you and I were talking yesterday about this very interesting study that came out of UVA, where a bunch of, of people, all age groups, were kind of asked to stay by themselves, you know, silently and in solitude in a room with no distractions. And the only distraction they were allowed to have was that of giving themselves a painful electric shock. And uh, the results of this experiment were the vast majority of people actually preferred painful shocks to just yeah. sitting in silence. And I noticed that in your own book, you described a silent retreat that you were really looking forward to and having almost a panic attack before it started. So why is silence and solitude so hard for us? Well, I think for many reasons, first of all, I've already mentioned spiritually, I think there is a spiritual challenge to solitude and silence and that the evil one is involved in trying to prevent us from knowing God in the way that we can know God in solitude and silence. I think that it's, I think solitude and silence is very challenging to us psychologically because when you remove all the distractions, you have to be present to what's really going on on the inside, you know? So my grief, my sadness, my wounds, my disappointments, my resentments, my frustrations, that 
without the distraction, then I have to really be present to myself. And what I'm present to might be difficult and painful to be present with, psychologically speaking. It's a psychological dynamic. I think solitude and silence is difficult because relationally we make ourselves unavailable to people that want us to be available to them. So we struggle with our, um, the way that we're all bound up in our relationships. And am I even allowed to be disconnected from people and unavailable to people for a while? Um, culturally, there's nothing in our culture right now that supports solitude and silence. And in fact, it might surprise you to know that I feel like I'm struggling more with solitude and silence than I ever have. And one of the reasons for that is the technology. Um, we keep our phones like literally on our bodies and in, on our wristwatches. Now we have ways of being notified that we have a new email message um, to be disconnected. Now people expect a response to their texts and to their emails immediately. And so relationally, it's difficult to give our full and you know, undivided attention to God versus allowing ourselves to be available through our technologies. You know what I mean? It's just so challenging and difficult on that level as well. And this fear of missing out, FOMO, you know, that if I'm not on and available, am I going to miss out, you know, on something really significant? So I think fear of missing out is now very much a part of our psychology as well. So there are just so many reasons why solitude and silence are challenging and more challenging now than ever, I would say. I wrote this book 20 years ago. I mean, honestly, I wrote it 20 years ago and yet I feel it's more needed in my own life and in other people's lives now than it was 20 years ago when I wrote it for, for the reasons that I mentioned. You mentioned the, the pain and the internal chaos that silence reveals. And I wanted to ask you about that along with, in many ways, sort of one of the paradoxical appeals of silence and solitude is, is rest. Uh, in fact, I think you devote almost a third of your book to essentially yeah. silence and rest. So how does that happen? You know, if, if silence actually exposes and forces us to face you know, kind of our internal chaos, that seems largely like an experience of disorientation and desolation, not of, of rest. Yeah. Well, and those are the, those dynamics that I just named and that you just named, those are something that we are going to have to tolerate and wait through until the chaos settles. Um, and so I'll move to talking about that metaphor that was so important to me early in my own experience with solitude and silence where I was all riled up and I knew it, um, emotions that I could sometimes manage but couldn't fully control, um, the drivenness of my personality at the time, the unhealthy ways I was living in my body, all those kinds of things were very, very true for me. And I sought out therapy at first. And then my therapist was also a spiritual director. And she eventually said, you know, Ruth, you're a jar of river water all shaken up. And what you need is to sit still long enough so that the sediment can settle and the water can become clear. And that image called to me powerfully. It called to me powerfully because on the one hand, I knew that she was naming me correctly. That even though I'd been a Christian all my life, I wasn't characterized internally by the peace that passes understanding. I was characterized by chaos and the sediment that was swirling for all sorts of different reasons. So to be named like that is a very convicting experience. Um, but then, you know, Richard Rohr talks about the fact that to take a good journey, first of all, you have to name where you are and then say, I'm willing to go someplace else. And so that image of the jar of river water that had sat still long enough for the sediment to settle and the water to become clear, 
that image called to me in a way that nothing else was calling to me, even though I've studied my Bible all my life and, and I'm theologically um, informed. This language was fresh for me and it was different. And I thought, wow, if my soul could be a place where the sediment had settled and things had settled down and the water could become clear, that's what I wanted. I wanted to have that kind of clarity inside my own soul. And that, that image called to me in a different and deeper way than even some of the biblical language called to me. Um, and I said, that's where I want to go. That's what I want to have be true about me. And I'm willing to try pretty much anything to see if that could be true for me. And so um, what I learned in my initial practice with solitude and silence is that the first thing I had to face was the chaos the very things we've named here, the only way to get to any other side is to wait through it. Just like the jar of river water, if it sits still long enough, the sediment will settle. If we as souls sit still long enough, first it's gonna be uncomfortable. It's gonna be really uncomfortable to sit. And then eventually though, the sediment will settle and something new will emerge. And so um, when I would come back to my spiritual director and you know, she was the one that encouraged me in solitude and silence and I would come back and I would say, this is so hard, it's so chaotic, I'm so distracted, I can't even sit there 10 minutes. She would very sagely say, well, that's what it's like because for the first time you're acknowledging that what's true inside you is chaos. This is what it's like. So I was seeing myself for what I really was outside of being distracted and unwilling to see. And so um, all, the only way through all that is through. There's no other way except to sit through the discomfort and maybe sometimes the pain. Um, but knowing that if, it's, if, if you sit still long enough and you don't even have to do anything, you don't bat around anything, you don't try to fix anything, but you're just willing to be still, then the sediment in our souls will begin to settle. And I hope that's encouraging uh, to people who are listening because I found it encouraging and I needed that encouragement in order to stay faithful to the practice early on. You know, one of the things that struck me about, you know, even the metaphor you mentioned, the spiritual director that you mentioned is um, you also mentioned in her book that at one point she had told you, be still and the knowing will come. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me just in reading your book, at least this reader, that there was sort of um, you know, a theme of epistemology that kind of ran through the book too. You, know, you have it introduced by Dallas Willard, the late great Dallas Willard, who was a, a epistemologist and a philosopher. Uh, and we're in a time of, of real confusion. Um, there's chaos and confusion and controversy about what is true or false, real or fake news and the like. And so what, what is the knowing? What is the knowledge Um, that your spiritual director promised you that comes through that kind of stillness when, you know, when the sediment settles. Well, I think that what she was referring to in that particular moment that I referenced was discernment, you know, that there were areas that I was trying to discern in my life Mm -hmm. and the answers weren't coming through the intellect and thinking really hard and listing the pros and cons and, you know, doing the research and reading another book by a guru. She was really encouraging that discernment where you're quiet enough that you can hear the Holy Spirit, you know, and the scriptures are clear that the only one who knows the mind of God is the spirit of God. And so if we're not hearing from the spirit, we're not knowing the mind of God. It's the only way to know the mind of God. And you have to be quiet. Um, You have to let some of that sediment settle to know the difference between your own mind, your own thoughts, 
your own culture, the voice of culture, what it is that God is actually saying to you distinctly deep inside. So I know there that she was referring to discernment, things I needed to know about my next steps would only come as I sat quietly and allowed God to lead me into knowing. The other thing that I experienced first that was a knowing, it really does refer to Psalm 4610, where I began to know myself in God beyond all the doing. I began to know and experience the love of God for me beyond all the doing. I experienced myself to be loved um, beyond the doing that many of us, especially as Protestant doer Christians, you know, we are so schooled in activism. It's just a part of the Protestant DNA that to experience ourselves loved beyond all the doing and to realize that God wants something from us first before the doing, God actually wants us, you know, before the doing, God wants us and God wants our undivided attention and God wants to shower us with God's love and God wants to give us the gifts of knowing and, and discernment and an experience of, of being accepted and known unconditionally. Those are all things that God wants to give us first, you know, and the activism and the doing can grow out of that, of course, and it does always um, because God is always doing good things in and through us and th in and through our journeys. But um, there was the experiential knowing of God's love um, and a fullness that came out of the knowing. And then the other thing I'll mention is peace, that I had not experienced a lot of peace in my life, you know, given my personality, given, you know, my, I, I, I do really enjoy the life of the intellect. Um, I'm a reader, I'm a studier. I love the life of learning and the life of the mind. Um, but the mind wasn't doing it for me at that point, you know, and I knew that there were places where I wasn't transforming. I knew there were places where I was still a selfish clod, you know, and those things weren't changing by getting more information and they weren't changing within the life of the intellect. And so, you know, God began to give peace. I began to experience a kind of peace that I had never experienced before in the words and in the learning and in the knowing and in, or excuse me, and in the, you know, the activism, there was a kind of peace that I experienced that was different than just talking about peace, you know? So a lot, a lot is given in the practice of solitude and silence that I do not believe comes to us in any other way. Truthfully, I don't think it comes to us in any other way. That's that's beautiful. Uh, you you lead an organization that actually focuses on solitude and silence and other spiritual practices for leaders, and uh, you know, leadership by nature is it's public, it's representational, it's wordy. You know, it's uh, exactly the opposite of of silence and solitude. So why do you believe silence and solitude is so necessary for leaders, and, and how does that work when the very nature of leadership itself um, you know, is an em almost the embodied opposite. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, in the book we're referring to today, um, the book on solitude and silence, I offer up the character of Elijah, who was a prophet in Israel. And I kind of track with his journey and track with his need to step back from his life and leadership. There came a point where Elijah said, God, thank you so much for what you've done for me publicly. You know, right before he enters into solitude and silence in 1 Kings 19, he has this greatest success in 1 Kings 18, you know, where he sets up that contest between the prophets of Baal and the one true God. And he calls down the fires of God on his altar. And, you know, the prophets of Baal try to get their gods to respond to them. They don't. There's utter silence. Um, but then Elijah calls down the fires of God on his own altar and God answers on that day. God was the God who answers with fire on that day. 
And so Elijah was vindicated and validated as a prophet, as a leader in Israel that day. But then the very next moment we see him, he's depressed, he's desolate, he's suicidal, if the, it, depending on how you want to read First Kings 19. And so we see his journey into solitude and silence where he, he says in effect to God, thank you for everything you did for me out there publicly, but now I need something from you. I am empty. I am poured out. I need you to do something more private and more personal for me. I need to have an experience of intimacy with you just for myself. And I think many, many leaders, as they lead, they lose touch with the fact that they're giving out so much to other people that they are no longer experiencing the intimacy with God that their own soul needs. Mm -hmm. They're no longer um, experiencing the rest in God that they need. They're no longer experiencing the guidance, the intimacy, the love, the strength that they need to persevere in the midst of hard times. And so Elijah as a leader, let's not forget that one of the major experiences of solitude and silence in scripture given to us um, by the inspiration of God is a leader who realized he needed more than just what he was experiencing with God in the public arena, shall we say. Mm -hmm. um, so he was replenished in an extended period of time of solitude and silence and then came back, came back to leadership with two things. One, he had his experience of intimacy with God that gave him his, his identity. You know, it became the bedrock of his being that encounter that he had with God. And secondly, God gave him guidance, like strategic, tactical guidance for what to do next, appoint a new king. Um, God talked to him about his rhythms and said, you can't keep doing it this way. You need a helper. You need another leader to share the burden with. Very personal and also strategic guidance that got given to Elijah as a leader. That's what happens for leaders. And then the other character where in scripture that I've written about extensively is the character of Moses and his life in leadership. And I identify what I would consider to be the sacred rhythm of leadership in his life. And that is solitude and the encounter with God that takes place there. Moses would go into solitude. He would wait for the encounter. They would have an encounter. God would give him whatever it was that he needed, whether it was an experience of God's goodness or whether or not it was the 10 commandments or whether or not it was guidance for you know, difficulty that, that Moses was having. And then Moses would emerge from that place and he would do exactly what God told him to do. And that was it. That was Moses's strategy. And I don't even think it was a strategy. It's just what sustained him. So I see in Moses's life, this sacred rhythm of leadership, solitude, you enter into that time to be with God and God alone. You wait for the encounter. You have the encounter. Sometimes it's going to have, you know, bells and whistles and knowings. Sometimes it's going to feel like nothing happened, but the sediment is still settling. And then you emerge from that place and you do exactly what God tells you to do. And that is spiritual leadership in my mind. That is leadership that's connected with the presence of God deep within, that knows what God is saying to me right now, and that has the courage to emerge from that encounter and just simply do what God is telling me to do. And I actually believe that that is a much, in some ways, less stressful way to lead than to think that I'm always going to be figuring it out up here, you know, or I'm going to get it from going to the next leadership conference. No, it's going to come from deep inside where God's spirit witnesses with our spirits about who we are and what's really true and what he's calling us to do and to be. 
So you mentioned this with Elijah, but you mentioned it a few times with yourself. And I'd love to ask you about um, how solitude changes your sense of identity mm-hmm. and how it changed, you know, the practice of solitude changed your own sense mm-hmm. of identity, who you are and what you're made to do. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a deep question because I've been practicing solitude and silence in, in a very disciplined way for 20 years. So there's lots of answers that could be given to a question like that. But I already mentioned that the experience of love, being loved beyond what you do, uh, that your identity is as the child of God, as the beloved of God, and that God is with you and God loves you beyond anything you will ever do for God, um, that becomes the bedrock of your identity, which means, and, and Henry Nowen refers to this too, which means that you can tolerate a lot of success and still know who you are. And you can also tolerate a lot of failure and still know who you are. Those things become external to you. They are not who you are. And so you can experience a wide range of things, you know, that, that could be considered successful or that could be considered failings, but it doesn't change who you are. It doesn't change your sense of being loved and being worthy. That is tremendous to have happen inside you. And I think many leaders are actually leading out of emptiness sometimes, and they're trying to get their identity from what they do and what their roles and what their titles are. And that's why they let themselves get into rhythms that are unhealthy is because they're still trying to get as much as they can get to shore up a sense of identity. But when you have it the other way, when you have it before you get out there and do stuff, even the quality of what you do is different. It's not so driven. It's not so frenetic. Um, you can, you know, do what you do for other people and leave the outcomes to God and return to that place of knowing who you are in God. So that is, that's very significant right there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also the, ex- the experience of trusting yourself to God in solitude and silence, because that's what you do for the 20 minutes or the half an hour that you sit open and receptive to God, you are trusting God with your very being. Um, and when you continue to have that experience and cultivate that experience, you bring that trust into your life, in the company of others and into your leadership where, uh, you're able to do what's yours to do, but you trust yourself and you trust others and you trust the outcomes to God. And so trust becomes very foundational to, you know, to how you do and experience your life. And then the other thing that I would mention for myself is just uh, leading and moving with more discernment versus trying so hard and trying to figure things out mentally and intellectually, but to feel that you have discerned God's way for you, especially around really knotty issues, K-N-O-T-T-Y, very knotty issues in leadership. When you are returning to the place of listening to God and you feel like God has spoken to you, and then you leave that place and you do what God has told you to do, that um, it's a much more restful way to lead. And it's a much, much more trustful way to lead. And you're not going to have those knowings without being quiet for a while. You're just, it just doesn't happen that way. God rarely knocks people off their horses like he did with the apostle Paul. He only does that when we're being really willful, you know, generally God does not compete for our attention. Generally the still small voice is a still small voice where we have to get quiet in order to hear it. And we have to set aside other distractions in order to hear it. Um, there's the moment in Moses's life at the burning bush where Moses sees the bush that is not burning, that is uh, burning, but not consumed. And he says, I must turn aside and see this great sight. And the scripture says that when God saw that Moses had turned aside to look, 
God called to him out of the bush. In other words, there's this cause and effect relationship between our practices of turning aside to pay attention and to look and to be quiet and God's willingness to talk to us because God doesn't generally compete. He just doesn't. He waits until he sees he's got our attention and he's got lots to tell us, but he's going to wait until we turn aside and say, God, you've got my attention. I'm listening. I'm here. I'm available. I'm receptive. And the practices of solitude and silence are how we say that to God. I'm here. I'm open. I'm receptive. I'm listening for your voice. Mm -hmm. And leadership that emerges from that place is distinctively and qualitatively different. We have a ton of questions, which we'll get to in just a second. But before we do that, just listening to you, I can imagine that there's many people listening for whom the prospect of, of stillness and silence and solitude sounds wonderfully refreshing. But also they, they live in places with very little privacy and um, unrelenting demands from whether it's work or children or others that they're caring for depend on them. Yeah. If you're in that situation, how um, how do those of us who live our life on call, so to speak, incorporate a practice of silence and solitude? Well, that is a wonderful question to dig into. Like there are there are real scenarios that you described right there that need, you know, guidance and that need ideas. Um, you know, obviously any sort of place that offers retreat or retreat ministry, we are really big on the come away part of come away with me and rest a while, even though we haven't been able to practice it very well the last year. Um, there is something about the coming away, you know, and Dallas Willard says, um, if you don't come apart for a while, you'll come apart after a while, you know, that <laughs> there is, there is a need to try to find a way to be away even just a little bit. Um, and I know that there are real stresses. There's young children. I, I practiced this when I had young children, a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a nursing baby. And so sometimes it was getting out of the fray and nursing the baby that gave me moments to be quiet. Sometimes it would be the 10 minutes you know, at night in the bath while my husband cared for children. And this, this is part of it is I think we need to work with the people that live with us and work hard together to brainstorm, how can you get some solitude? How can I give you some solitude? And people who work together, uh, who live together can work together, whether you're single, living with roommates, how can we work together to give each other even the smallest little bit of time alone and quiet? I, I love being alone and present to God in my house, which hasn't happened a lot lately. It's not happened for anyone a lot lately. And sometimes I've just had to ask my dear loving husband, could you just please go do an errand or something so that I could just have a little bit of time? And it just replenishes me so profoundly that we're happy to give that you know, to each other. Um, with young children, I have daughters who all have young children and it's a beautiful thing to watch how they work with their husbands and how they work back and forth to give each other these moments alone to hear from God. Um, the other thing that I hope is encouraging is that God is really faithful. We serve and seek a God who comes and God is really faithful to come into any little tiny bit of space that we create for him. And so even if it's only 10 minutes that we can get, God comes in because God's waiting, you know, to come in. So let's not set our expectations too high, but if it's only 10 minutes or it's only a half an hour, 
take it, be intentional with it. Um, I remember when I was a young mother um, and seeking solitude and silence and I would get my kids into preschool and then there'd be all the stuff I wanted to do. I want to wash the kitchen floor. I want to shop. I want to, to do this or that. And I would have to, I would see, I only had an hour and a half and I would have to be so intentional with what I was going to do with that tiny little bit of time I had. And even though so much was clamoring, I knew what my deeper desire was. And most of the time I made decisions that were consistent with the deeper desire of my heart, which was to be present with God and allow God to be present with me. And so um, I think if church sanctuaries are open, you know, even to slip into a sanctuary or into um, a beautiful chapel for a few days at our, at our lunch hour, that can be something. I even suggest giving yourself a little bit of time at work. You know, you, you get a lunch hour, you know, that's given to you by law. So use it, you know, turn your chair away from your desk, face a cross or a candle and give yourself a few moments to breathe in God's presence during the working day. Mm -hmm. If we know this is what we want, we can find ways. Human beings have an interesting way of making sure they get what they want. Have you ever noticed that? That's the way we're wired. Mm -hmm. So if we go down deep and touch our deepest desires and we realize this is something I want, it's amazing what our intentionality can do and bring if we know this is what we want. Thanks for that. So our first question comes from Jackie Kay. And Jackie asks, can you tell us what your solitude looks like? How do you prepare before going in? What do you do during your solitude? And how long does your solitude last? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's go with the, the easy one first, the how long. That really does depend on what your life situation is. So now oftentimes I can have, you know, what I try to do is not even have my technologies on until nine o'clock and I am an early riser, which means that I have, I can have a couple of hours of quiet that are very, very intentional. Now that's now, I couldn't do that when I had young children. When I had young children, I would be very lucky to get the 10 minutes and I had to work hard to even get that. So the how long may be, um, in some ways predicated on what your life stage is. And and let's be clear that the purpose of solitude and silence is to, you know, to be with God in love and then eventually to be with others in love. And so we want to be careful not to set such high expectations for our solitude that we get angry and frustrated with our peeps, you know, and we get angry with them for messing up my solitude. And I remember, I'm only speaking because I remember times like this when I wanted the solitude so bad and I was then mad, you know, mad at my family and mean to my family because they weren't allowing for it. Let's be really careful to watch that dynamic. And if it doesn't get given on a given day, it doesn't get given. Um, so what I hesitate to be really specific about my season now, because when I started, it was 20 years ago and I had two young children and a nursing baby. And what I did back then is very different than what I do right now. But let me mention a couple of things that I think can be kind of universal. One is if you could create a sacred space um, and I write about this very practically in Invitation to Solitude and Silence, that if you could have, it can be very, very simple. It can be a corner of a bedroom. It can be, um, you know, maybe it's a place in your office or it can be, you know, the recliner in the family room at a time when nobody else is in the house. But is there, is there a space that you could create so that just by entering into that space, your body and your soul starts to settle in? So a place where you have a cross, you know, or some other religious symbol that means something to you, um, a candle that you can light. And I love the lighting of a candle. And you'll notice I have one with me here today, even as I'm speaking, not so much for ambiance, but to remind me of the presence of the Holy Spirit, you know, 
that the Holy Spirit came as flames on the heads of the disciples in the New Testament. And so the lighting of a candle reminds me of the real presence of the Holy Spirit with me now. Um, it's not just for ambiance sake. And so to be reminded and then to use the candle perhaps as a focal point, when you get distracted, you can see the flame and you come back and you say, oh yeah, that the laundry needs to be moved from the washer to the dryer. The yard needs to be mowed. The dishes need to be done, whatever it is. Oh, but this is what I'm here for. I'm here to be present to the spirit of God deep within the candle reminds me. Um, so to have a sacred space. And now, um, when I enter into that space and I light the candle, I mean, it's over. I, you know, it just draws me right in to what I'm there to be and to do. So that's one of the most concrete things that I can offer. And then um, the other thing is to really pay attention to your body. And so when I am with people in retreat environment, I actually teach them what to do with their bodies because my own spiritual director taught me how to be in my body and how to let my body be the temple that guides this time. So feet flat on the floor, you know, you can start doing that right now if you're in a place where you can do it. Cause I love getting into this posture because your body's now the temple, you know, guiding you. So your feet flat on the floor, uncrossed legs. So there's nothing in your body that's holding it tight, you know, uncross your arms, open your hands. Um, Notice any place that you're holding tight and breathe deeply and, and breathe specifically into that place where you're feeling the stress and the tension. Use your breathing. Um, sometimes people think I'm getting kind of woo-woo and Buddhist when I talk about that. But the truth is that breathing is a very Christian thing to do. Amen. You know, God gave the first woman and the first man their breath. Let's reclaim this idea of breathing. This is part of our Christian heritage. And when we breathe, we can remember that God is giving me my breath right now. With each and every breath, God is affirming my life. God is saying, I want you to be alive on the earth now. Um, and use your breath as a way of coming in touch with the spirit of God present with you now. Um, all of those are ways of entering in um, and settling yourself down. And so I suggest at least 10 minutes of open-handed silence where you're not doing anything. Um, solitude by definition is being with God and God alone. Silence by definition is silencing not only your life in the company of others, but you're also silencing your addiction to words and to noise and to activity um, as a way of shoring up your sense of self. So in silence, we withdraw from all of that as well. And um, to have at least 10 minutes of open, receptive, truly, I'm not doing anything or bringing any agenda to these moments. And 10 minutes can be very challenging um, early on. Uh, after a while, though, your, your capacity increases and you realize you want more and more of that open silence. But then from there, and I do suggest starting with the silence, then from there you can go into scripture reading if you'd like, but you're coming in more quietly now because you've settled down on the inside. Mm -hmm. You might journal about what it is that God said to you in the silence or what he didn't say or how frustrated you were or what you were present to, what God brought to your mind. Um, you know, any spiritual reading that you're doing, you can do that out of the silence because then, you know, what God has to say can, can penetrate more deeply. Um, and then um, even any question that you have that you're trying to discern to really, you know, 
present that. And then there's also a practice of intercession that I won't take the time to describe right now, but we can actually um, add some intercession in a certain kind of open-handed way where we actually invite God to bring to mind anyone that needs our prayers today, anyone that's asked us to pray for them, not make it a memory game, but instead, again, this open receptive stance where you allow God to bring whoever needs to be brought. And you just hold that person openly and lovingly in God's hand and then in your own hands in God's presence. And then I would say the traditional way to, to end our times of solitude and silence is to come back into words through the Lord's prayer, um, to use the Lord's prayer to bridge between your silence and your life um, back in the realm of words. So those are just some, just some ideas of, for what people who practice know how to do relative to this discipline. No, that's great. And I anticipated many of the questions that we have gotten. Our next question comes from Chris Marlink. And Chris asks, it seems like extroverts have the deck stacked against them with these practices. But do introverts really have an easier time of this? Or does their proclivity to solitude differ from this practice? Mm -hmm. I love that question because people often think that some of these basic Christian practices are affected, you know, by... Or, or maybe we maybe we are even off the hook with them if they don't fit our personality types. So extroverts might want to say, well, because I'm extroverted, I'm off the hook. I don't have to do solitude. Or on the other side, introverts could say, well, because I'm introverted, I don't have to do community. Do you know what I mean? Um, your personality type only tells you which ones are going to be more difficult and challenging for you and why. But we're each all still called to the basic Christian disciplines and solitude and silence is a basic Christian discipline, spiritual discipline. And so, yes, it will identify one set of challenges. So if you're an extrovert, yeah, it is going to be difficult to remove yourself from your life in the company of others. And it's going to feel harder perhaps than for extroverts. Um, but introvert, or extroverts need it as much as anyone else because without solitude and silence, extroverts are going to tend to skate along the surface of their lives and never drop down into this deeper way of knowing. Now, introverts though have their own struggle with, with solitude and silence, believe it or not. We are drawn to it, but introverts can also spiral into morbid subjectivity and into morbid introspection. And they have to be really careful in solitude and silence that that doesn't happen. And that, that, that mm -hmm. the evil one doesn't see solitude and silence as a foothold within which to lead them into the darker spiraling you know, emotions of, you know, sadness and depression and desolation and things like that. And so introverts have their own challenge. Yes, extroverts do have a challenge. Maybe the getting into it is more of the challenge, but the extra, the, the introverts have a challenge too, once they get into it and they have to be careful in their own way. Oh, that's great. So I want to combine two related questions, both really interesting questions about sort of the connection between the mental and the manual. William Robinson asks, solitude and silence seem to be highly interior disciplines. Matthew Crawford, who wrote Shop Class's Soulcraft, talks about more exterior ways of training our attention and clarifying our minds through craft and manual labor and other direct forms of engagement with reality. Are these complementary approaches? Do you agree with Crawford's perspective? And somewhat relatedly, uh, Wendy Stackable quotes Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and says, if you work with your mind, Sabbath with your hands. And if you work with your hands, Sabbath with your mind. Can you address the way we might experience solitude in light of Rabbi Heschel's comments? So I'll throw both those somewhat related questions to you to kind of, for your thoughts. 
Yes. Um, in the last chapter, an invitation to solitude and silence is entitled for the sake of others. And it does connect our solitude with our doing. Because when we're practicing solitude and silence, we actually then begin to bring a, di a different presence to our life in the company of others. So that very quality of solitude and silence, which in the beginning has to be shaped by exterior silence, eventually in the practice of solitude and silence, the, the solitude and silence ends up being inside us. It's not about your external situation at all. It's not about the chapel and it's not about the quiet room. It's not about the candle or anything like that. You have now internalized solitude and silence. So wherever you go, you are bringing your solitude and silence with you. And you can always access that place, no matter what's going on around you in your work life or in the culture or whatever, you can always access that place of quiet where you know who you are, you know your basic identity, um, where you know that God is with you, where you can actually say to God, what's going on here spiritually speaking? What are you calling for? How can I align myself with your purposes? That that quality of presence is now with you everywhere you go and you can access what happens in solitude and silence anywhere. Um, and it changes the quality of your presence with, with other people. Uh, now you need to keep coming back into some sort of external silence in order to keep you know, to keep cultivating that place inside you that carries solitude and silence with you wherever you go. And one of the most precious things that ever happened to me in this connection between my solitude and in my life in the company of others was one night when I was practicing, it was evening, it was early evening and I was practicing, no, I was writing actually, I was trying to, I probably write this book probably, no, it was a magazine article that I had a deadline with. And um, I'd been practicing solitude and silence for a while and I had three children and um, they were at the time in preteens and, and you know, older children. And our middle daughter um, had a bunch of friends over. I think there must've been 15 of them. And um, they were playing basketball out in front, but they kept traipsing through the house. And I was so frustrated that I couldn't get my writing done, that I couldn't focus on my writing. Um, and so I actually said a prayer to God. I, I think it might've even been out loud. You know, if solitude and silence doesn't make any difference in this moment that I'm in as a busy young mother, it doesn't make any difference at all. That was the feeling that I had. If I can't bring something different to my moments as a mother of a busy household, then solitude and silence is really, truly irrelevant. That's what I said in, in great frustration to God. And God led me to the memory of that Julian of Norwich quote, where she says, first I look at God and then I look at you and then I look at God again. Her, when someone asked, how do you pray for me as, as a contemplative? She said, first I look at God. In other words, I see us in God. I see you in God. Um, then I look at you. Then I look at your situation. I look at this situation through the eyes of God. Then I look at God again. And I thought, I am going to practice this here tonight. You know, first I look at God, remind myself that I'm in God, all that I've experienced in solitude and silence of God's love. Then I look at these young people that are playing basketball outside my window, that are traipsing through the house, trying to get snacks and drinks. Um, and then I look at God again and I see them through God's eyes. And it was powerful to see these young people, to see their bodies and to see their energy and to see their beauty and to see their life and their energy. And it just changed me in relationship to my exterior world, you know? And then I was able to give them love. And then I was able to be a conduit for God's love and attention versus just trying to be selfish and self-centered 
and get this little bit of time for myself to write as a writer. That's all I ever want to do is write. Um, and that's, that's, I, I don't even know if I'm getting at the questions. I hope I am mm -hmm. that there's this relationship between solitude, our life together with others and our calling in the world that is very rhythmic. I'll, I'll call it rhythmic. And if we can get our rhythms established, our practice of solitude will carry us into the world with more love for this world that God loves and gave his life for. That's what I've experienced over and over and over again, because in silence and in any sort of spiritual formation practice, the heart of Jesus is being formed in us. The sacred heart of Jesus is being formed in us or else it isn't Christian formation. And then it's the sacred heart of Jesus that we're carrying out into the world. The, that heart that beats with love for all the other of God's children, you know, and all the world's issues and everything that's going on. God's heart beats in love for all of it. And our heart is beating with God's for the world. Ruth, thank you. This has been absolutely fascinating as well as really encouraging. The last word is yours. Thank you. I actually really want God to have the last word. I'd like us to experience a moment of silence. And so I'm going to lead us in a brief prayer. And in the middle of this prayer, there's going to be maybe 30 seconds of just quiet to settle in to what we've talked about here. It's so important not just to talk about this sort of thing, but to actually experience it. And then I will complete the prayer and that will be all for me. So if you want to right now and you're able, you could go ahead and put your feet flat on the floor, making sure you've uncrossed your arms and your legs. You could breathe deeply as a way of coming in touch with the spirit of God deep within that God who is giving you your breath, even in this moment and with your breath is affirming your life today. He's saying to you with your breath, I want you to live. I want you to be alive in my presence. I want you to be in me for the world. Open your hands on your lap as a way of saying to God, I want to receive whatever you want to give me in these moments, even if it's just a moment of ease in the midst of a busy day. Oh God, gather me now to be with you as you are with me. Soothe my tiredness, quiet my fretfulness, curb my aimlessness, relieve my compulsiveness. Let me be easy for a moment. Keep breathing. And now, Lord, release me from the fears and guilts which grip me so tightly, from the expectations and opinions which I so tightly grip, that I may be open to receiving what you give, to risking something genuinely new, to learning something refreshingly different. Oh God, gather me now to be with you as you are with me. Amen.
Ruth, thank you. Great to be with you. Good to be with you too, Cherie. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We'd love for you to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations on your favorite podcast platform and to share this episode with a friend. More information on today's programs and show notes are available at ttf.org. Until next time, we wish you the gift of great conversations.